You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Morning, everybody. I'm Morris. I'm one of the elders here. And it's my privilege to continue our series in, uh, in Ruth. We're going to be picking up the narrative in chapter 2. Uh, we've already had we're two messages in, and uh, Tom uh, last week uh, was starting to cover some of the material that I want to cover today. The noble thing to say is that sometimes God wants to repeat things, and uh, I want to make sure that you've understood it. Uh, another narrative might be that I didn't read the preach rotor properly, and Tim had to point out to me this morning what verses I was actually preaching on. But either way, let's dive straight in. We're going to read chapter 2 of uh, Ruth. I'm going to be reading it from the NIV. Just, uh, I, I tend to preach from the ESV, but the NIV uh, has a smoother flow when reading a narrative. So I'm going to read from the NIV. Uh, the beautiful story, wonderful story, uh, Ruth uh, meeting Boaz. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabites, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, well, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. And greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. And Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabites who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort, have spoken kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her, offered her some roasted grain and she ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. And then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. 
And Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And then Ruth the Moabites said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So that's a beautiful story, a beautiful narrative. This takes place around in the fields around Bethlehem. Uh, one of my responsibilities, one of my roles is to do a fair amount of travelling. And as it happens, I was in Israel last week and I was stood on the Mount of Olives looking over the, uh, the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount. And just a little bit to the south, to my left as I stood, was the twinkling lights of Bethlehem. It's a beautiful thing. If you've never had the opportunity to go and visit Israel, I know it's a privilege. Uh, but if you do, I mean, we are uh, followers of a Middle Eastern religion. <laughs> you know, my... My king and my saviour uh, comes from Israel. And it was a beautiful thing to be there, to walk where he's walked and look at what he's seen. I do recommend it. And it was thrilling to be there and to look across to uh, Bethlehem. Where, and just imagine this narrative. Everywhere you went, you're thinking, what happened here? How this story unfolded? You know? and, uh, and this is where this uh, beautiful story of Boaz and Ruth started to unfold in the fields around Bethlehem. You know, as you've already been uh, hearing earlier in this uh, series, that uh, Naomi's husband uh, made what would have appeared to have been a prudent decision. There was a famine in the land, took uh, his wife Naomi with him to Moab uh, to escape a famine, but disaster struck the family there, and both Naomi's um, husband and both her sons died. Her sons had taken wives there. One of them decided to remain in Moab, and the other pledged herself to come back with Naomi. This is Ruth saying, no, I'm going to come with you, and I'm going to come with you back to your land. And uh, that beautiful uh, verse in, in chapter 1, verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where all people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. It's a tremendous commitment of loyalty. And uh, she's going to go back and uh, tough things out with her mother-in-law, even though the family have faced all sorts of setbacks. So just a couple of reflections on the context before we dig into the narrative. Clearly, I don't know if you picked the sense of this up as you're reading, as I was reading through chapter 2 there, the sense of a lawless context, you know, Boaz and Naomi, both saying to Ruth, Ruth, look, hey, be careful where you go. Be careful. Stay close. Stay close here. Don't go over there because you might get abused, it says in one uh, translation. You might get harmed. You know, it's dangerous out there and you're vulnerable. And so stay close uh, where you can be safe. A vulnerable young woman in this uh, context was not safe. And it's a bit of a sad indictment on society at that time. You know, did you pick that up from the narrative I was reading it? You know, don't, don't go there. Whew. Stay close to me. Hey, lads, look out for this one. Don't go in that field. You could be in trouble. You know, stay. And you, might, you think, well, what sort of lawless society 
that they were living in at that time. But perhaps if you've read the newspapers in the last few weeks or in any uh, season of our civilization, we're not that far removed. Let's not look at this context and think, wow, this was a really brutal, lawless society. When I'm opening the papers and reading about midwives being found in shallow, shallow graves with tape around their eyes and women coming over to study and finding themselves being trafficked for sex in my nation and little boys being found dead under a chest of drawers with bruises to their groin and cracked skulls. You know, so our society is a broken society. Okay, we may be able to conceal it with our wealth and our sophistication, but, you know, a basic starting point for understanding the narrative of, of a Christian worldview is that the world is broken, okay? And so we're not that far removed from this context, this lawless context. You know, we have to protect one another and keep one another safe and, and say to our uh, vulnerable people, don't go there, stay here. You won't be safe there, but you'll be safe here. Uh, that's, the, that's the society we live in. We may have put lipstick on a pig, but humanity is depraved and society is broken. And uh, that context is no different to the context that we're reading about here. But there are some other differences in context. We have to acknowledge that there was a different culture of interaction between men and women at the time that this was written. And uh, the sort of some, some of the sort of ways in which Boaz and Ruth were speaking to each other, some of the ways in which Ruth presented herself to Boaz would be quite foreign to us, quite different to the way that we would understand men and women would interact today. It's a very different culture that we are uh, steeped in, in terms of an expectation of how men and women would interact. And we will come back to that shortly uh, a little later as I unpack these verses together with us. But what shines through this narrative and what uh, Tom has already alluded to, and, and this is really where uh, I just want to touch on briefly, what, what shines through in this narrative is the, uh, is the issue of reputations. There's something beautiful in this uh, element of the story that we can unpack about the reputation of Boaz as a, a commendable man and the reputation of Ruth as a, a displaced and vulnerable young woman who's had a pretty tough deal. But Boaz, what a wonderfully commendable man is Boaz. You know, he's a, he's a godly employer. Wouldn't it be great to turn up to work and say, the Lord bless you to all the people in your office. And they all shout back, the Lord bless you too. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Try it on Monday. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> uh, Boaz was a godly employer. You know, I'm sure he cared for his workers in a godly way. You know, he, was a, he was a caring man. We can read that in verse 9, the way that he noticed this vulnerable girl. And he instantly made provision for her protection and for her care. You know, saying, no, hey, let's look out for this one. Let's care for this one. This is an obligation on, uh, on his faith as a good uh, Israelite, uh, but there's also an obligation on his conscience. You know, saying, hey, you know, we've got, an, we've got a, an alien, a foreigner among us, and we're going to take good care of her and look after her and protect her. Because if she goes into someone else's field, she'll be vulnerable, but she'll be safe. What a wonderful reputation. Men, come on. 
Is that, that's the reputation we want, isn't it? You know? Man, he's a safe one. You know, he, he's the one, you can trust that one. He'll, he stands out from the others. He's not a leering, lecherous, self-seeking, grabbing. No, he's, he's the one in the workplace that you can rely on to be dependable, a man of integrity, that if I go to him, I know he's going to look after my best interests. This is a great reputation we're unpacking here with Boaz. I love this. But he was a caring man. He was wise and he was aware. He was, he was aware of what was going on around him. He wasn't daft, but he was wise in the way that he dealt with it. You know? And also, and what I love about this, he was attracted to godly character. So this young woman turns up in his uh, workplace. He's not going, she looks all right, isn't she? You know? He's saying, no, I've heard of your reputation, actually. So now his Boaz is attracted to Ruth's reputation. I've heard you looked after your mother-in-law. Ooh, that caught my attention. You know, just, that's just a, a freebie for the single men among us here. <laughs> what are you looking for? Well, and for the single women among us as well. What are you looking for? You know? Are you looking for busting your moves at a nightclub? Sharp dressing? You know? Nice car. A man of godly reputation. Here's a godly man. I'm gonna here's a godly woman. Look at this woman. She, you know, she's honorable, she's loyal, she's faithful. Man, this this trumps everything else. You know, looks are important, for goodness sake, of course they are. You know, but this trumps it all. I'm I'm looking at this and thinking, man, this is beautiful attributes of godly character, and I'm attracted to that. So Single men and women, I encourage you. Maybe you're called to singleness, and that's a very high and noble and worthy calling. And we honor it and we celebrate it among us. Maybe you feel you're hardwired one day to get married. Well, this is where it starts in terms of what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah? What you're looking for. And uh, I, I could get distracted on that issue, but I'm not going to. All right. <laughs> but, so this is Boaz, a godly man, and a, a godly employer, a caring man, wise and aware, attracted to godly character. Ruth, an equally commendable woman. She's a Moabite. You know, she's, come, she's an incomer to the people of Israel, married into the family and then left widowed. And now in a foreign land, she's come out of her faithfulness and loyalty to her mother-in-law. She's hard working, we read in verse 7, when Boaz says, you know, who is this? Oh, she's been working all day. She just took a short rest, but man, she is, she is going for it. You know, she is, she's going to look after her mother-in-law and herself and do whatever it takes. She's working hard. She's not living with this sense of entitlement. Well, there was no sense of entitlement in those days. There wasn't one. There wasn't a welfare system. We'll come on to what was the welfare system uh, in a little while, but in those days there wasn't one, you know, so she, she's sort of really fighting for her mother-in-law and herself and she's loyal and faithful and, and this is, a, as I say, attracted Boaz's attention, her godly character you know, it says, look, you know um, I've been told all about, this is verse 11, what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother your homeland, 
You came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. You know, Ruth, what a beautiful temperament and nature and character. And so there's something for us to aspire to here as men and as women, aspiring to the godly character of Boaz as a man uh, in the business place, creating a godly culture wherever he is and caring for the vulnerable within his influence. Highly commendable. What a beautiful reputation. Men, I pray for you that you would have such a reputation, that I would have such a reputation. And may our neighbours, in our family, our extended family, you know, who's the one that people would say, well, if you're in a tight spot, talk to that one, you know, in the workplace. Let's aspire to that, men. And ladies as well, let's aspire to this. You know, sort of uh, taking responsibility for their own affairs. Hard working, but loyal, faithful. Beautiful model of godly femininity that is being uh, portrayed for us there in the life of Ruth. Because this is the difference for us. I mentioned earlier that the context of this narrative is where there was a, a different interaction between men and women. We live in a context today which is saturated with a completely different narrative of how men and women should interact with each other. It's, uh, we're, we're saturated with a narrative of equality. Uh, we're saturated with a narrative that somehow wants to gender neutralize our world and eliminate any sort of perceived gap between masculinity and femininity. And co terminus with that, along together with that, the unspoken narrative that somehow, if we are to define masculinity and femininity, we're implicitly suggesting superiority and inferiority. And that we're steeped and saturated in this narrative. We're soaked in it. If you've lived in the Western world for any time, you are soaked in this narrative. And we have got to learn how to navigate this and articulate what it means to celebrate godly masculinity and godly femininity. And not somehow feel that those two have to overlap, that they have to be the same. I am very grateful that godly femininity is different to godly masculinity because one can't survive without the other. And if we allow ourselves to be fed the lie that somehow for men to stand up and be godly men is asserting some sort of gratuitous machismo superiority over women, that is not a biblical narrative. That's a, that's a narrative that has been fed to us in order to undermine the biblical narrative. Because the biblical narrative is very clear on the equal status of men and women and very clear on the differing functions of men and women in the context of just about every arena of life. And that is offensive to our culture. But we cannot pretend that the Bible is gender neutral, <laughs> because it is not. And I, I'm not here really to make that appeal. I could go into some detail about it and probably end up offending half the people, at least in this room. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I'm, I'm appealing to us. I'm not giving you an answer today. I'm appealing to you and just saying, you have men 
and women have got to stand back and understand the culture in which you live, just in the same way we have to stand back and understand the culture in which this narrative is written about Boaz and Ruth and make some adjustments and corrections. You've got to understand the culture you live in, which is seeking to somehow obliterate uh, the beautiful complementary aspects of masculinity and femininity and feed you the idea that somehow one is superior to the other. If we assert that, we are asserting superiority and inferiority. That is not at all. I don't think anybody who seriously believes what the Word of God has to say believes that. No one believes that. No one believes that godly men are somehow, if you adhere to masculinity and femininity as defined in the Scripture, are asserting superiority over women. No one believes that. The people who want you not to believe that are the ones who are telling you that. Okay? So, we have to res- godly femininity and godly masculinity are beautifully created, ordained, complementary, and we will always, from this pulpit, resist the idea that one is superior to the other, but we'll always commend the fact that we each have different things to bring to the party. Okay? You know, the biblical narrative is different. The first shall be last. What are we grasping for? Jesus said, you know, I'm, equality isn't something that I'm grasping for. You know, I haven't come here to serve, uh, to, to be served and to exercise entitlement. I've come here to be, to, to be a servant. That's what I'm here to be. There's a very different narrative in the scriptures. And so I'm just appealing to us. I know this. I know I am walking on a very, very thin tightrope. <laughs> okay. But I want you to hear my heart in this. All right. We've got to think for ourselves about the godly contexts of masculinity and femininity and not allow those to be eroded or obscured by a culture that is seeking to eliminate that. And that will be um, to our loss, not to our gain. It will be to our loss. So, godly reputations. Godly reputations as a godly man, we see in Boaz. Godly reputations as a godly woman, we see in Ruth. And beautiful it is. And what this narrative also talks to us about is a tipping point in the fortunes for Naomi and for Ruth. It's a tipping point. They have had a very, very rough run. Okay? They try to escape a famine and end up, uh, the women folk end up losing all their men. They are then left vulnerable. There wasn't a welfare state system in those days. Okay? There wasn't, they couldn't go down and check in and see what benefits were available to them and get their housing benefit and get some job seekers allowance or whatever, whatever, whatever. That did not exist. There was a very different code of welfare available to vulnerable women in these days. And one of them was gleaning. Gleaning was uh, the practice that when the harvest was being taken in, the barley harvest was being taken in, that you just allowed a little bit to be left behind so that the poor among you, particularly widows, could come behind you and pick up the little bits that are left over. And Boaz, out of his caring hearts, he's saying to his guys, hey, chuck a bit more out there as well. <laughs> Leave a bit more out. This is part of their welfare system. This is how these women lived. This is how they ate. How else were they going to eat? 
This was part of their welfare system, gleaning. So Boaz is exercising, again, within the obligations of his uh, particular religion, but also, I think, out of the care of his conscience. He is uh, uh, offering some care to these women who are at a very low ebb in their lives. I don't think it could get any lower. Can it get any lower? You know, can it get any lower that your husband has died? That your sons who were there to provide for you in the event of your husband dying has died? That one of your daughters-in-law has decided not to come with you? One has. So now you've got two mouths to feed and two people to look after. Can life get to any lower an ebb than this? I don't think it could get any lower. There's a low, low ebb. And here we see another provision of social welfare for this era. We read about verse 20. Naomi, suddenly her eyes brighten. Oh, she says, this man's our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. This was brilliant news for Naomi. Oh, this is great. A kinsman redeemer is someone in the family who has a responsibility according to their code of practice as a nation, as Israel, to take care of the one in the family who is vulnerable or suddenly find themselves in hard circumstances. Now, this was, the, this was the social welfare of the day. And so suddenly Naomi's thinking, oh, I know this guy, Boaz, he's in our family. He can, we can appeal to him and say, please, will you take responsibility for us because we are poor and destitute and vulnerable. We can do that. And you're going to hear the, uh, the slightly uh, uh, idiosyncratic plan that Naomi <laughs> uh, hatches over the next chapter or two to bring that about. Um, I'll let you enjoy that uh, in the chapters to come. But this is the tipping point. This is the turning point of this story, of this narrative. The tipping point when suddenly Naomi thinks, hang on, Boaz, he's a man of good standing. He's in our family. He can take care of us if we appeal to him. He's our social welfare. We can go to him and say, please, we are in a very, very poor state here. Can you please take care of us? And he would be legally obliged to take responsibility. This is the tipping point. Their life was at the lowest possible ebb. And we suddenly see, come into this narrative for poor Naomi and for poor Ruth, vulnerable and destitute their kinsman redeemer, the one from their family who is going to come and rescue them, the one who's going to come and pick them up, the one who's going to deliver them and save them, the one who's going to provide for them, the one who's going to care for them and protect them. We have a kinsman redeemer, don't we? <laughs> we have a kinsman redeemer. We have a brother who's come to save us. It says in uh, Hebrews 2, it says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. <laughs> I've got a brother. When my life was at its lowest ebb, 
He came and he delivered me and he saved me. We've got a kinsman redeemer, friends. When we're feeling our life at its lowest ebb, and we feel vulnerable, and we're thinking, what can I turn to? What's going to be the tipping point? What's going to be the turning point for me? Can it get any worse? You know, if only I had a bit more money, then perhaps things would be better. You know, if only my relationships were better, perhaps that would turn the corner for me. If uh, I could find a good man or a good woman, or if my husband was a good man or my wife was a good woman, then maybe that would be a tipping point for me. Maybe if I could get a better job. Maybe if I moved town. Maybe if I forget all this Christianity rubbish, it's all just putting guilt on me. I can go and live a better life. That would be a turning point for me. If you are at your lowest ebb, you need a kinsman redeemer, and his name is Jesus. Okay? So first of all, I want to appeal to those of you who are walking in the faith, those of you who are walking with Jesus. Okay? And you feel your life is at a low ebb. And you're thinking, how do I get out of this? What is going to change this? I appeal to you, turn to your kinsman redeemer. Don't turn anywhere else. Don't be tempted to turn to any other way of getting yourself through this situation. He is the only one who will protect you. It's a hostile world out there. He's the only one who can provide for you. He's the only one who cares for you in the way that a redeemer can care. He's the only one who can redeem you. He's the only one who can rescue you. Please don't give in to the temptation or the lie to try to turn a corner by any other way than turning to the only one who has the words of eternal life and the only one who can care for you. Amen? Amen. Are you with me, friends? Please, please, that is a hostile world out there. Don't turn to anything else. It's a lie. Turn to Jesus. He is the one, the brother who cares. And I just want to speak to anybody here who does not know Jesus. You have not met Jesus. Or you've heard about him, but you've never really considered what it means to build your life with him. Maybe you're here out of polite courtesy because a friend has invited you. Maybe you're here out of curiosity. Maybe you're here out of desperation. I'm telling you, you you're in a safe place. You're in the best place. Because there are many people in this room here who would want to introduce you to the one that has saved and rescued us. And if your life is at a low ebb, if you feel you are, things could not get any lower, let me introduce you to Jesus. Please. Let your friend or neighbour, whoever you're sat with here, let them introduce you to Jesus. Because he's the one who protects the vulnerable. He's the one who comes in and restores us. He's the one who delivers us and saves us. He is the one who lifts us. He's the one who puts our feet in a firm place. Amen? We have a beautiful kinsman redeemer. What a beautiful picture to us of Boaz and Ruth, of Jesus and his bride. You know, this vulnerable, broken woman. And Boaz saying, I'm going to take you. Oh, I'm giving the narrative away now. Okay. That's the Easter. Doom, 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 doom. Right, you'll have the rest of the story later, won't you? I just appeal to you. 
He's our kinsman redeemer. He's our, he's our brother who comes to rescue us. If your life is at a low ebb and you're looking for some tipping point, he is your tipping point. He's the one that you can appeal to and say, come and rescue me. Come and save me. Come and deliver me. And he is willing. He is fighting for us, we heard earlier. Reach out with that little bit of faith we heard earlier. And he will be there. He'll come in like a flood. Believe me. Where would I be without my kinsman redeemer? And I'm going to uh, just finish by nicking, as, uh, I'm just going to nibble a little bit into the next uh, uh, part of the story because um, this is my opportunity. Really. I just, I love, as you all know, or maybe you don't, but here's another spoiler alert. You know, Ruth does go on to marry Boaz. And she gives birth to a son, and the son's name is Obed, <laughs> who is the grandfather of David. <laughs> and Jesus is of that line. We know that, but hey, look at this. Look at this. There she is in a destitute place, and her mother-in-law saying, I'm going home, I'm going back to Israel, I'm going back to Bethlehem, what else can I do? And she's saying, well, I'm going to come with you. What are the consequences of that decision? What are the consequences of, of a faithful decision saying, I'm going to go with you? Yeah? How was she ever to know that we would be speaking about her thousands of years later because of one faithful decision... The consequences of that was that her great-grandson was King David, and we now worship a king in the order of David. How was she to know that? How are you to know the consequences of your faithful decision-making in this life? How are you to know? How are you to know? You're sitting there thinking, this is tough. You know, in some ways, it would be a lot easier to just give up on this Christianity malarkey. How are you to know what consequences for the next generation and the generation after and the generation after will arise because of your faithful obedience in this life? My mother was evacuated in the war. She was four years old. She was evacuated in the Second World War in 1940. And she was evacuated to Linton in Cambridgeshire she came from a very, very, very poor family with 11 brothers and sisters living in squalor in South London. And she went to... It was a, not a godly family, not a saved family, not a, a God-fearing family. And she was evacuated to a middle-class village in Cambridgeshire. And she was taken in by a Salvation Army spinster lady who cared for my mother all through the war years. And uh, my mother would go with her to chapel in the Salvation Army. And um, after the war finished in 1945, uh, my mother's parents left her there, didn't come back for her. Until 1948. Can anybody, anybody here recognize the significance of, of that date? Israel. Israel. Something even more important than that. The Child Benefit Act was passed in 1948. <laughs> suddenly, my mother was worth money. And suddenly, her parents appeared on the doorstep. 
that she hadn't seen since she was four years old, and they're hammering on the door saying, that's our daughter, we want her back, because she's worth money. Yeah? There was a custody battle, so the, the Salvation Army spinster uh, fought to adopt my mother, and uh, she failed, and my mother was taken back into the squalor of South London. Um, and there she, uh, she met my father, they were married, and uh, had four children. I'm one of them, because <laughs> she's my mother. And my mother was not a church-going woman, but because of her experience with this Salvation Army spinster, she was a God-fearing woman. And she sent me to a Baptist church Sunday school. Now, I like to believe it's because she was concerned for my spiritual welfare. I rather believe it was actually to get, her, get me out from under her feet on a Sunday morning. Yeah, go on. But that's where she thought, well, that's where he needs to go. And as a consequence of that, I met Jesus. And as a consequence of that, I married a beautiful, godly wife. And as a consequence of that, I have four beautiful children who I am teaching as best I know how and training them as best I know how to walk in the ways of God. And I want to get to heaven and find that Salvation Army spinster. I want to get there. I, I tried to look her up recently when I heard the story because my mother had not told us the full story and I tried to look it up. And I went to the town in Linton and I found someone who knew this lady, but this lady had passed away. So I wasn't able to see her. But I'm going to see her one day. And I'm going to say, look at this. Your decision to take in this poor little four-year-old girl yeah, and to introduce her to the ways of Jesus. Look at the consequences of that. Look at the consequences of that. You know, She, as a God-fearing woman, sent her children out to Sunday school and they found faith in Jesus and now they're looking to raise their own children in the ways of Jesus. And there's going to be a beautiful harvest for that woman in heaven because of her faithful obedience. So I'm going to take in this poor little wife and straight. I'm going to take in this poor little four-year-old girl and take care of her. So this story is precious to me. Yeah? It's precious to me. Boaz took in Ruth. Look at the consequences of that. Ruth was obedient to Naomi. Look at the consequences of that. I just want to appeal to you, friends. Sometimes we have to tough it out in the Christian walk. Sometimes we're thinking, what is, what is the total sum benefit of me walking this narrow path when there's this wide path over there, everybody else is walking along. They look perfectly happy, actually. And I'm walking this narrow path. And what are the benefits and the consequences of that? You will find out one day. You will find out one day. You know, God is going to bless those that come after you. Your children, your children's children. The Bible says that as we walk in faithful obedience with him. And even if you don't have children like this... Uh, Salvation Army spinster that took my mother in. There's a harvest for her of righteousness and fruits because of her faithful obedience. So I appeal to you, friends, hang in there. <laughs> if your life is at a low ebb, turn to the one who can rescue you, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus. If you're thinking... What is the point of all this? Just remember that you are bringing about consequences that you may never know till you see Jesus face to face and he shows you 
Look at, look at the consequences of your faithful obedience cascading down through the generations. Okay? It's worth fighting for, folks. It's worth living for. It's worth the sacrifices. It's worth the painful obedience. It's worth the forsaking and the giving up and the holding on. It's worth it. Okay? It's worth it in this life and it'll be worth it in the life to come. So let's stand together. If you feel um, uh, comfortable to do this, just lift your hands in surrender to our beautiful king, our beautiful brother, the man Jesus who has rescued us and is able to save. I pray for anyone here who has not yet handed over their lives to Jesus. This is a warm appeal to you. It will be the best decision you will ever make to say, you know, I'm giving up trying to run life my way. I'm giving up trying to prove that I can do it. I can't do it. And in fact, it's a rebellion not to give my life over to God. It's a rebellion trying to say, no, I can do it without you, God. I'm saying, no, you can't, all right? Just give in. Just give in and hand it over to Jesus. And say to Jesus, Jesus, I regret and I'm sorry for trying to do this on my own. And I just want to tell you I give up now, trying to do it on my own. And I give my whole life over to you, Jesus. You're my kinsman redeemer. You're my brother who saves. And say, Jesus, save me. Protect me, Jesus. Deliver me. Rescue me. Provide for me, Jesus. I pray for anybody here who's an emotional low ebb. Maybe you're a physical low ebb. A relational low ebb. But turn to Jesus. Just turn to him. Just tell him how you're feeling. Just tell him how it is. Feed on on things that are true. Feed on truth. Feed on his presence. Let it reassure you and comfort you and guide you. There's no one else to turn to. It's all rubbish out there. It's all rubbish out there. No one else to turn to. Turn to Jesus. Lord, uh, I pray you'd help us be attentive to our reputations, Lord. That we would build such robust, godly reputations in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. Just like Boaz, people, and like Ruth, people say, Look, I've heard about you, I've heard what you did. I've heard what you like. You're a man of standing. You're a woman of standing. Lord, I pray. Lord God, we'd be attentive to our godly reputations. That we would be known for these things. Not known for, you know, just being like everybody else, just like the world. No, we're not like we're not of this world. Why we we're not like this world. We're not of this world.
I just want to pray for, I just can see, I see three very vulnerable women in this room. When uh, we were hearing about the woman reaching out just to touch the hem of Jesus' cloak. You're, you're here like that. You just, you know, your life has poured away. If I've got nothing left, I am, I am wrung out. Well, reach for Jesus. Reach for Jesus. With what little strength you can summon now, I appeal to you. Reach to Jesus. Reach out to him. Take hold of him and he will grab hold of you. Take hold of him. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are battling through tough circumstances, thinking, what is this about? Lord, I pray, put within us an eternal resolve, Lord. We're not just living for tomorrow. We're not just living for uh, a return this week or this month. We're looking for eternal return, Lord. And we make faithful, obedient, loyal decisions like Ruth did. That there'll be consequences that, that tumble down through the generations that we may never see in this life, but one day we will see it. Lord, just as that, I'm going to meet that Salvation Army lady one day and say, I'm here because of you. Yeah. because of the consequences of your care I'm here Lord I pray that that will be the story for many of us now, many of us will say oh man you know look at that because I held firm look at the consequences of that for generations so stand firm I pray in Jesus name thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.